Well, some of the fondest memories of my life come from dinner tables, community group Christmas parties that go far too late into the night, uh, vacation dinners in rent houses or cabins, and the late night card games that follow, dates with my wife Marcy around dinner tables and or picnic lack thereof, nightly family dinners at my house, at my parents' house when I was growing up as a child. These are fond, fond memories, but none of these tables or places mean much without the people that are around them. The reason that these are such fond memories is because of the people there, the laughs, the conversation, these things that happen around the table. What happens at the table is actually quite important. Apart from what happened with in all of these memories around the table, uh, apart from those, it's just me sitting at a rectangular piece of wood and putting food in my mouth 50 or 60 times, right? Well, tonight in Mark, we will consider the most important meal that has ever taken place. If community group Christmas parties are some of my fondest memories, then undoubtedly for those present at this meal, it remained one of the fondest and most indelible memories for the rest of their lives. And while we weren't present at this first meal, this first Lord's Supper, it sets the stage for one of the most important and regular meals that we take as Christians. We're going back into the text in Mark 14 tonight as we skipped this text uh, last Sunday and went ahead. But just to remind you what's happened now from two Sundays ago, uh, two weeks ago, we saw that the chief priests and scribes began to plan for Jesus' arrest and murder. Immediately following, a woman anointed Jesus for his coming death and burial with a very costly ointment. And then Judas goes to the chief priests in order to betray him. So tonight, we'll see the story progress, and we'll see it progress in three moves. Coming to the table, uncertainty around the table, and covenant at the table. So first, coming to the table. We read in verse 12 that this is the first day of unleavened bread, the festival that began the day before the Passover festival. These two festivals were two of the most important days in the Jewish year. And of course, Passover is where uh, this thing has been headed for a long while. Jesus has been on the road to Jerusalem since chapter 10. Of course, going to Jerusalem for this festival, for Passover. He, along with all Jews, would make this annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate and remember how God had delivered his people out of bondage from Egypt. And now Passover has finally come. It's here, finally. We've been waiting seemingly for months as we've been preaching through Mark. Jesus has been on the road and on the road and on the road, and now he's in Jerusalem, and now the reason for him being here is here. He's in Bethany, a two-mile walk from Jerusalem, but Passover must be observed in Jerusalem, within the city walls. So his disciples ask him in verse 12, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Jerusalem is jam-packed with pilgrims from all over the Mediterranean world, so preparations need to be made. The, the population of Jerusalem quadrupled during this weekend, so one does not simply walk into Jerusalem during Passover without plans. 
What we find is a scene very similar to chapter 11, where Jesus sent two of his disciples to find a colt tied up for his triumphal entry. With language that is extremely similar, Jesus sends, again, two disciples into Jerusalem to find a man walking around with a water pot, seemingly a pot on his head. Now, we're left with the same two options that Ryan gave us in chapter 11. Either Jesus has prearranged this meeting with this guy. He's found a guy who will host the disciples and Jesus for this Passover, uh, and he's made plans. Remember, one does not just simply walk into Jerusalem without plans. And the water pot is like the secret password. By the way, a man carrying a pot would have been conspicuous. Carrying water was a woman's job in these days. Uh, And if a man was carrying water, he would have likely carried it in a skin, uh, so not a pot. So the first option is Jesus has made plans. He's prearranged this meeting. Or Jesus, in his divine omniscience, knows a guy who will have a free room for them to meet, and he's going to have a servant who's going to be walking around the city with a water pot. Jesus knows all this is going to be happening and the street on which this man's going to be walking. So he tells his disciples, look, I know this is going to happen. Go in there, follow the guy, and that's where we're going to meet. Either way, it doesn't matter. What's important is what Ryan pointed out on Sunday. Things look like they are beginning to spiral out of control. The music seems to be swelling here as it's getting more ominous and maybe a bit more frantic. But things are not out of control. Jesus remains entirely in control of the entire situation, whether in prearrangement or in omniscience. So, you disciples are to follow the water guy back to his house and say, verse 14, to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Now, his commands here are pretty forthright and direct, perhaps even seemingly discourteous to the owner of this house. Hey, where's my room at? Where am I going to eat? But the point is, is that it is his guest room, and it is his Passover feast. He will eat it with his disciples. Everyone else is along for the ride and will reap the impending benefits behind him. It's all his. Jesus says that the guy will show you a large upper room, a room at the top of his house, which would be used as a guest room, and it'll be furnished and it'll be ready to go. Probably not with a long, rectangular Leonardo da Vinci uh, Last Supper table, but likely a more floor-level U-shaped table with pillows all around, where you could sit on the ground, recline, and eat. Jesus says, when you find that room, prepare the Passover meal for us. Unsurprisingly, in verse 16, the disciples set out, went to the city, found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover It was either all prearranged or exactly like Jesus knew it would happen, but he is in control of it all. Things are happening. Dominoes are falling. The snowball is starting to roll down the hill and gain momentum as it will ultimately crash into the cross. So cut scene and pick it up that night. Uncertainty around the table. And when it was evening, verse 17, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now the Passover feast is a serious time. 
We'll talk about what might have been said in a minute, but everyone, while serious, is probably enjoying each other, enjoying a meal together. This may or may not have been the first time that the disciples had taken Passover with each other and with Jesus. We don't know, but they're likely having a good time. Perhaps even a quiet laugh here and there in the corner with James and John or something. But then Jesus says, one of you will betray me. One of you sitting here and eating with me. Buzz kill, right? The record scratches to a stop. Hearts begin to beat a little faster and nervously. Uh, everyone looks wide-eyed at Jesus first and then starts gazing suspiciously around the table and perhaps even introspectively. Verse 19, they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? With two quick sentences, the whole atmosphere has gone from celebration and remembrance of God's salvation to present questioning and doubt. Perhaps you've experienced a life-altering sentence in your life. Maybe you were playing at the park with your kids or enjoying a meal with your family and you get a phone call, an unexpected call from your hometown. In just one sentence, the phone call says, your cousin was killed in a car accident. Or, son, your mother has cancer. Just four or five words that can change the trajectory of your entire life. Whatever you were doing is now meaningless and seemingly trivial in light of this new and extremely serious reality. The disciples go around the table and ask, is it I? This is likely a defensive, surely it isn't I type of questioning, but maybe there's even a twinge of doubt in there as well. Well, maybe not from Peter, as we saw last Sunday in the next section. He's pretty confident in his loyalty to Christ, but that's just the thing, isn't it? While we all know who the traitor is, Mark has already told us in verses 10 and 11 of this chapter that it's Judas Iscariot, there's a sense in which all of them are traitors. Peter's confident that he won't deny Jesus, but then he does. The remaining 11 don't betray him with quite the same level of treachery as Judas, but when the shepherd is struck, they all scatter in fear and unbelief. It is grace and only grace that allows God to dwell with his people and eat with them. He is strong and faithful. They are weak and faithless. It's only by his body and by his blood by which they are made right and new. And this might be another one of Mark's sandwiches here, which we don't really get to see since uh, the way we've separated these chunks of Mark in our preaching, but we just, we, we've just seen Jesus predict, predicting betrayal on one side of the Lord's Supper. And on the other side of the Lord's Supper, we see uh, Jesus predicting betrayal on the other side with Peter. The meat in the middle of betrayal is the bread and the cup. The faithfulness of Christ is like the shimmering diamond on, laying on top of the faithless black mat. But Jesus is pointing out the particularly heinous betrayal of Judas, deliberate and severe, not just running away. Verse 20, he said to them, it is one of the twelve, 
one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. It's not just that someone out there is going to betray Jesus, but it is someone in here, someone close to Jesus, who is eating presently with Jesus. And eating meals in the Mediterranean world were of major significance. You only ate a meal with someone whom you were close with, someone whom whom you trusted. For someone with whom you shared a meal to betray you is dastardly. Our meals aren't quite the same way. They aren't particularly important, are they? We have lunch appointments all the time with both close friends, new acquaintances, and perhaps someone you're meeting for the first time, perhaps in a business lunch, right? But perhaps we got a little glimmer of this last week in Charleston, South Carolina. On Wednesday night, just a week ago right now, news started coming in that nine people had been murdered during a prayer meeting. We didn't know a ton of the details that evening. Uh, We didn't know much about the victims, about the shooter, about the details in which it all happened. But what we found out Thursday morning seemingly made it all even worse, if that was even possible. This kid sat in a prayer meeting for over an hour. They welcomed him, prayed beside him, and then he killed them. In the end, it doesn't matter that he was welcomed by his victims. They would have still died, nevertheless, even if he had not prayed with them for an hour, if he had just come in and started shooting. But it is seemingly worse, right? As you think to yourself, what kind of person would sit for an hour listening to someone pray and then do that? Well, someone who is so hell-bent on what he is about to do, someone whose vision and emotions are so clouded um, by hatred and delusion that their acceptance of him doesn't even matter. And I think this perhaps helps us understand Judas. He knows full well what he's about to do to Jesus as he sits down smilingly next to him and eats with him. But while our brothers and sisters in Charleston were victims, Jesus is no victim This is exactly the way that God had foreordained all of this to go down. Perhaps when Jesus says, as it is written in verse 21, he has Psalm 41, 9 in mind. Even my close friends in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Or having just been anointed by the woman earlier in this chapter, Psalm 23, 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. The point is, just as Ryan explained last week, all of this is under the purview of God the Father himself. Things are not out of control at all. God is orchestrating events so that his people might be redeemed by the culminating cross of Christ. And yet, Judas is nevertheless, even though God is sovereign over it all, Judas is responsible for his actions. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born at all. 
which of course, obviously, reminds us all of the Bohemian Rhapsody, where Freddie Mercury sings, I sometimes wish I'd never been born at all. And I think that line in Bohemian Rhapsody is the saddest line of any song or poem ever written. Think about it. You realize that Freddie Mercury is saying that He's not wishing that he wants to die, right? He's not wishing that he died, that he wants to die. Just a line before, he says, I don't want to die, but sometimes I wish I'd never been born at all. Even suicidal people can look back in their lives and remember sometimes of happiness and joy, sometimes that they were thankful that they experienced. But to say that there is nothing in this life that was worth experienced, I wish I had never been born at all, That's a low place. But Jesus says this of Judas, not just because of Judas' present experience, but because of his future. Jesus knows the chain of events that Judas' betrayal is about to begin, both in his life, in his last couple days on earth, and in the afterlife. Betrayal, followed by guilt, regret, suicide, and eternal judgment. It would have been better for this man had he never lived at all, Jesus says. And yet, God, in his providence, is using the selfish and sinful actions of this turncoat to bring about the forgiveness of sins. And this becomes the setting for our third scene, covenant at the table. Betrayal, treachery, doubt, uncertainty, at least in Mark's account, the disciples don't know who the betrayer is, they're just looking around and at themselves. Surely it's not me. I, I hope it's not me. I would, I would never betray Jesus, I think. And then God comes to his people in covenant. Verse 22, as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Now, since Jesus was leading the disciples through the Passover meal, like a Jewish father would lead his family, perhaps a little context here would be helpful. For a traditional Passover meal, after initial blessings over this special day and over the wine, the patriarch of the family would initiate the drinking of the first cup of wine, the first of four. Then followed some vegetable appetizers and a second cup of wine, And after the second cup, the youngest son at the table would ask the patriarch, why is this night different from other nights? The youngest Jewish sons over all all around Jerusalem were asking their fathers this. The patriarch would then retell the Exodus story, drawing special attention to three things. The Passover, because God passed over the houses of our fathers in Egypt. Unleavened bread, because our fathers were redeemed from Egypt and bitter herbs, because the Egyptians embittered the lives of our fathers in Egypt. And then the patriarch puts himself into the story, in the present. It is because of that which the Lord did for me that I came forth out of Egypt. After singing through several psalms, the patriarch would pronounce blessing over the bread, break it, and distribute it. This is followed by the eating of the meal, including the lamb. A third cup of wine is then blessed and drunk with more singing of psalms, and then a fourth cup of wine concludes the meal. Now, understanding all this is certainly not necessary for understanding the Lord's Supper, 
because the Passover meal is not what Mark is emphasizing. Something new is happening here. But nevertheless, the disciples must have been taken aback when in the taking of a meal that they had all taken 30 times, 40 times, 50 times, we don't know how old the disciples are. They've taken it many, many, many times. The patriarch, Jesus, stands up, takes the bread, and after blessing it, breaking it, and then distributing it, he goes off script. He doesn't follow the liturgy that they all likely had memorized themselves and had led their own families through. He says, after he distributes the bread, take, this is my body. And again, the record scratches to a stop, and they say, what? Now Luke adds Jesus' words, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. But I think we can stay in Mark and actually understand what he means here by saying, take, this is my body. In chapter 6, 5,000 Jews surround Jesus as they listen to him teach. And we read in chapter 6, And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to the heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. Identical language from Mark 14. Blessing, breaking, and giving. And then two chapters later in chapter 8, this time surrounded by 4,000 Gentiles, he took seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples, and set before the people. Jesus, here in chapter 14 at the Lord's Supper, is identifying himself as that same miraculous bread from heaven, which will now give life to and sustain both Jew and Gentile. Verse 23, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Likely, now taking that third cup of wine through the Passover meal, Jesus, likewise, as to the bread, says that the wine is actually his blood. Now, we all know that this was coming, right? We know this story well. We've been a part of countless Lord's Supper uh, remembrances and churches in which we've been a part. We know that these are the two elements of the Lord's Supper. But for Jesus to say that the wine that they are about to drink was his blood would be shocking and appalling, perhaps even more so for them than for us. Blood was to be considered the very life of a living thing. So Jews were prohibited in the law from drinking blood. But this is the offense of Jesus' coming cross. Death and curse, what is shocking and appalling, will actually bring life. And he says that this cup is his blood of the covenant. A covenant in the Bible is where God comes to his people, making promises to them that will keep God and the people in right relationship with each other. And nearly always in the Bible, when a covenant is inaugurated or begun, it is ratified or sealed with blood. It is serious business with very solemn vows. And the language that Jesus uses, the blood of the covenant, comes straight from Exodus. 
where God made his covenant with the people at Sinai. In Exodus 24, we read, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Jesus, God himself, is now coming to the people anew, replacing that old covenant instituted by Moses with a new one. But while the blood of the old covenant of the law could only cleanse externally, the blood of Jesus' new covenant will cleanse internally. It must be taken in, not just received outwardly. And surely, Jeremiah 31 is in Jesus's and Mark's minds here as Jesus offers the blood of the new covenant. God says through Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This new covenant will finally change hearts, will finally cleanse and forgive sin once and for all. It will transform to the uttermost ways in which the old, te- the old covenant never could or was intended to. The new covenant, which God's people had been waiting for for centuries, was here in the cup. He's saying, it's here. The new covenant is here. The Jeremiah 31 new covenant is here in my blood. But a covenant... And cleansing of sin requires blood. And Mark doesn't want us to lose sight of the fact that this is Passover. Four times in chapter 14. It was now two days before Passover. When they sacrificed the Passover lamb. Where I may eat the Passover. They prepared the Passover. Mark doesn't want us to forget this. The image of God's good and right judgment falling down from heaven should be in our mind's eye. In Egypt... Death was coming for Egyptian and Jew alike. Only those who sheltered themselves in houses covered by the blood of the Lamb would death pass over. And the same is true here, not in houses covered with the blood of the Lamb, but under the cross, which is covered by the blood of the Lamb. But we aren't celebrating Passover any longer We celebrate and remember the Lord's Supper. While many of the elements of the Passover feast were present, this meal acts as a hinge from the old covenant to the new, from the old wineskins to the new wineskins. So we no longer celebrate Passover as Christians. We celebrate and remember the Lord's Supper. There's something new happening in this cup of the new covenant. And I don't think it's an accident that Jesus takes a cup. Now, it's true, sure, what else could wine be held in? He could have taken a bowl, I guess. But the cup of the blood of the covenant is followed just 13 verses later by Jesus praying that the cup 
of God's wrath might be removed from, removed from him. The cup of the covenant is not only representative of Jesus' shed blood for his people, but it also reminds us of the cup of God's wrath that comes toward all people in their great sin, but is absorbed in the death of the greater Passover lamb who shelters all who hide beneath him. Though Jesus is surrounded by men who are weak and are afraid and are self-promoting and self-serving, he invites them into communion with himself through his coming shed blood on the cross. This moment is what Isaiah saw coming in his vision of the suffering servant. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he, pour, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Even his closest friends and disciples are counted as transgressors against him, against the law of God, against God himself. So he must die for them. He must give his blood for them. Perhaps it would be helpful in a few minutes for you to do what one couple I know does as they come forward to take of the cup. When you take of the cup, to just look at it in quiet reflection, understanding that the cup that you're holding should be filled with your blood, but is instead filled with what reminds us of Christ's blood poured out for the many, poured out for you. One quick word of clarification here. I've said represents and reminds us now a couple times, and I think that's right. In addition to Jesus' words in Luke that we've already read, do this in remembrance of me, I find it very unconvincing that the disciples would have thought Jesus literally meant, as he stood with them in his body, that he meant that the bread which he's holding and distributing is also turning into his body, right? They're saying, wait, Jesus, wait. Which one is your body? Is, is it you up there standing at the head of the table or is it what I'm holding and I'm eating? Which one is your body? I'm not quite sure. The figurative body and blood in the Last Supper are surely something similar to what Jeremiah did in Jeremiah 19. Jeremiah takes a piece of pottery outside of the city walls and smashes it in the presence of, of the Jewish leaders. One commentator says, Jeremiah could have said, this is you, smash, but he doesn't. The symbolism was unavoidable. When Jesus breaks the bread and distributes it to the disciples, it means that what has happened to this bread will happen to him. There's nothing magic or saving in the bread or the cup. After all, Judas himself at least began eating the Passover meal with Jesus, did nothing for him. And at least from Mark's account, we don't have any indication that he didn't take all of it. We don't see him leave at all. Our focus isn't on the elements themselves, the bread and the juice or the wine, but on Christ, his body, his blood. Just as Mark's focus throughout this entire book has been on Jesus the man. Who is this man? We must get him right. So know now that it is possible in just a few minutes, for you to come forward 
for you to eat the bread and drink of the cup and not be in covenant with God. Are you in agreement with God about your sin? Do you see it the same way that he does? Are you trusting in Christ alone to make you right before God? His life lived for you. His death died for you. Left to ourselves, none of us are any better than the weak and uncertain disciples. Our only hope is to trust in the full and faithful work of Christ in the middle of this faithless sandwich. The meal that the disciples took here with Jesus would have been one of the most memorable and meaningful moments of their lives. They saw that the Passover feast, which they had taken many times, celebrated every year of their life up to this point, found its ultimate end and fulfillment in Christ. And the taking of the Lord's Supper should be an ongoing and regular reminder to us of the covenant with God in which we live. It points us backward in time. It causes us to remember what Jesus did not only 2,000 years ago, but when we began trusting in that, how he cleansed us and forgave us of sin, how he did that in the past. But it also has present implications for us as well. Paul commands us in 1 Corinthians 11 to examine ourselves before we take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper has present implications for our lives as we pursue holiness and pursue unity with one another as Christ's body. It has past implications, present implications, but the Lord's, the Lord's Supper certainly has future implications as well as it looks forward in expectation. In verse 25, we read, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. In the midst of betrayal, uncertainty, and a coming crucifixion, Jesus says to his guys, Guys, we're all going to share a meal like this again. You know that? And not just with 12 next time, but 12 billion What Jesus isn't saying is that he won't drink again in his resurrected body, either on earth or in heaven, but that he won't celebrate this meal again until its final culmination at the marriage supper of the Lamb. One commentator even suggests that since traditionally there were four cups of wine at Passover, and Jesus likely only got to three in this one, what he was saying is that I'm not going to drink of that last cup. It just, sat, it just sits there on the table untouched. In a sense, the Lord's Supper is an unfinished meal. So sure, when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, his work of reconciling sinners was finished. But there's a sense in which this regular meal reminds us that this isn't all we have to look forward to. The bread and the cup, representing Jesus' body and blood, are sweet and visceral reminders of his love and his grace. But if you think about it, it's pretty meager, right? Like once a month, we take off a little crumb. I wish, I wish most of you, by the way, would like really confidently grab a big old chunk and take it. We can do all that confidently together. But nevertheless, it's pretty meager. There's not much there, right? And we need to keep taking it over and over 
and over and over and over again, which is a good thing. We're commanded to, and it's good. It's a great reminder. It helps us experience unity with each other and communion with God, but it also reminds us to look forward to his return, the full redemption of our bodies and the meal with the Lord Jesus himself, which will be full and will satisfy every longing and desire that we've ever had. We will not finish that meal and be hungry again an hour later. We'll be full to the brink. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11 that by taking this meal, we proclaim his death until he comes. I think the implication is we won't take it any longer. There will be a marriage supper of the Lamb, and we won't take this thing anymore. We'll, it, it's found its purpose and its culmination. So this, there's a sense in which the meal that we're about to take tonight is an unfinished meal also. It looks ahead. And that's why we'll sing in a few minutes, Soon the Lamb will take his bride to be ever at his side. And all of heaven will be there to come and dine. It will be a glorious sight. All the saints in spotless white. And with Jesus, we will feast. No more of this any longer. We will feast fully and completely satisfyingly. So come and dine.